It seems that the early church was a singing church. It was a caring church and a loving church and a worshiping church and a striving church, but it was also a singing church. Paul admonishes his readers in Ephesus, as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves, sing and make melody to the Lord in your hearts, giving thanks to God the Father at all times and for everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what I wish, Marilyn. I wish we had a hymnal from the first century. I think that would be a hoot. A songbook that had all the new songs that were being written by inspired believers in that early church. I cannot imagine how rich and dynamic it would be. But alas, we don't have a hymn book. We don't even have a book of Psalms in the New Testament. And you might think we have no examples of the hymns and spiritual songs that were used by these early congregations as they met to worship. But actually, we do. We don't have a hymn book, but we have some really great examples. Because there are lyrics and portions of songs that have been incorporated into the New Testament writings. While we don't have a hymn book, we get a glimpse of the songs that early believers of Jesus would use in their worship. Scholars identify at least 11 places in the New Testament where songs and hymns are quoted. Apart from that, the book of Revelation contains a plethora of song sheets. But the 11 places in the New Testament that are likely to be from the first century version of CCLI include Mary's Song of Adoration, the Prologue in John, the Love Chapter in 1 Corinthians 13, the Christological masterpiece of Colossians 1, and the powerful passage that was read this morning from Philippians chapter 2. Though he was in the form of God, he did not consider being equal with God something to exploit. I want you to try to imagine the melody as we go through this. But he emptied himself by taking on the form of a slave, a doulos, and by becoming like human beings. When he found himself in the form of a human, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God highly honored him and gave him a name above all names, so that at the name of Jesus everyone in heaven, on earth, and under the earth might bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That is some impressive songwriting. The lyrics tell a story, a story of the Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. The story begins in the way out there where God is God and God makes this decision to allow God's unity to somehow be disrupted so that God could show up as a human being. And as a human experiencing life as a person, Christ, God in the flesh, lived in such a way that brought glory to the idea of a loving God and resulted in the sacrificial death of God in the flesh. 
as an act of loving obedience to all that God is. As a result of Christ's actions, the unity of God and the unity of God and humanity cemented as Jesus Christ is understood and worshipped as Lord of all. Now, in the first century culture where the phrase Caesar is Lord is the oft-repeated mantra of the masses, the assertion that Jesus is Lord is a statement that reminds the hearers that Jesus is the ultimate king in a kingdom where love, grace, kindness, and inclusion are the law of the land. That's great stuff. And in the parsing of the creative words used to create this lyrical masterpiece is one particular verb that grabs our attention and forces us to understand the incarnation as the ultimate act of love and grace. He emptied himself. He emptied himself. Empty, it seems to me, and I may be wrong, but it seems like that's just a strange verb. The Greek word kanao means to empty, to negate, to lose power. But the verb isn't used very often in Greek or in English. We say, it's my turn to what? Empty the trash. Or we say, did you empty the dishwasher? Or, oops, I emptied the bank account. When the bases are full and the batter hits a home run, we say he emptied the bases. Huh. But outside of that, I'm not thinking of a whole lot of times that I use the word empty as a verb. Anybody? Can you think of other times that you use the word empty as a verb? Anybody at all? Yes. Okay, good. Use that in a sentence as a verb. I just got emptied emptied of my hopes and aspirations. Okay, all right. Somebody else. A way that you use the word empty as a verb. It's just rare, isn't it? But there is another way we do use the, the verb, and that's when we're talking about meditation. We use the phrase, empty the mind, as an encouragement to let go of thoughts and concerns that limit you in your desire for inner peace. It is said that when we empty our minds, we allow ourselves to be fully present in the here and now. Hmm. What is it that God is emptying and why? The scripture just says self. He emptied himself. Christ, the Word who was with God and who was God, emptied himself. But of what? Of divinity? Of divine privilege? Of divine status? Of power and authority? The Message Bible works really hard to help us understand the passage when it translates it like this. Christ Jesus had equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. 
No, not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave, became human. Having become human, he stayed human. Whatever the phrase emptied self means, the end result is that God was enfleshed and lived with us. Perhaps the emptying was necessary so that God could be present, truly present in our lives and in the messed up world into which God came. If you remember from last week's sermon in John 1, 14, the word became flesh. The phrase literally means the word pitched his tent among us. In other words, the word who was with God and who was God took up temporary residence on our block to experience the life we live and to model a better way of unconditional love and radical grace, to usher in a new kingdom, not based in political or financial power, but based in the empowering movement of God's Spirit in our midst. And the end result of the emptying and the life lived and the death inflicted is that that kingdom is a growing reality. Even now, the kingdom of God is alive and well and moving and growing in our world as we treat others kindly, as we forgive, as we are merciful, as we partner with the dispossessed, as we do unto the least of these, as we practice generosity, as we care, as we include, as we go and do likewise, the kingdom grows. And in the kingdom, it appears that the act of emptying seems to be the beginning of a new and better understanding of God and a deeper connection to our neighbor. Amen.